that we sing to not just you, but to each other, to remind each other of the glorious truths of which we sing, that, Lord, you are indeed changing us, that you are worthy of our worship. And, Lord, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would aid us in continuing to worship. Lord, as we come before your word in just a few moments and we consider it and we uh, seek to honor you in hearing you, and then applying the truths that we learn to our lives. Would you be so gracious? Father, we pray not just for ourselves, but for other churches. We lift up Blue Ridge Community Church this morning in our community, that you would be with them as they gather together, as they seek to honor you and share the gospel uh, in their uh, neck of the woods. We thank you, Lord, for them. We pray that you would strengthen them, that uh, your spirit would sanctify them by your truth, and Lord, that you would grow them, that we might have more churches, not less, praising you and honoring you and growing and being a witness to this community. Father, we lift up other churches within the Reformed Baptist Network. We think of Miller Valley uh, Baptist Church in Prescott, Arizona, that you would be with them. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the work of the brothers there. Uh, we thank you for aiding them, Lord, in um, the work that you have called them to do. We pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them great wisdom, that uh, you would give the elders wisdom and the deacons wisdom as they seek to minister to their community, and Lord, that you would strengthen them. Uh, so we uh, lift them to you, Lord. Father, we don't forget to pray for the persecuted church. We are humbled that we are uh, not um, in fear of persecution on a daily basis as our brethren are around the world. And so we lift up the church in Kazakhstan this morning, that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them and give them boldness and courage, uh, even when uh, they may be punished for standing up for you. Lord, that you give them grace as they even may be arrested or sitting in a cold cell this morning or this afternoon there, that you would be with them, that you would make your presence known to them, that they would sing songs this evening to you and knowing that you are sovereign over them and that you have not turned a blind eye to them but strongly support them. And Father, those who face death, Lord, that you would give them strength and courage to take their final breaths and final stand for you uh, if they are to lay down their lives for you. And so we lift up the persecuted church to you, Lord, that you tell us to pray as if we're in chains with them. And so seeking to be obedient to you, Lord, and to um, unite our hearts to them and realizing these are not uh, old tragedies, but present day ones that we pray for them. Father, we pray for the unreached. We know that you have called your church to take the gospel to the nations. And while we may not personally go, we know that there's a big world out there that desperately needs you, that you are calling people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and you are redeeming them, your elect. And we are praying, Lord, that you would send missionaries to proclaim the gospel to them, to translate the scriptures into their language. And so we lift up the Buyang, the Baha people of China. God, that you would send people to them. Oh God, have mercy upon them that they might praise you in years ahead as they hear of the wondrous God that you are. God, that you would burden your church in the West as you have in the past for the many who are crying out to hear of the gospel of Jesus, that there is a God in heaven who is not silent, but has sent his son. 
And that, Lord, as we wait on your second coming, help us to proclaim your first. Father, we pray for troubled places in our world. We think of Sudan. We think of the war in Ukraine, the starvation in Ethiopia, refugees in various places. We lift these troubled spots in the world to you. And we ask for your grace to help in time of need. Father, we pray for our military and those who are serving you overseas that are very lonely and separated, that you would give wisdom to our chaplains as they seek to impart encouragement in your word to them as they travel or in various places. God, we pray for those who are grieving. Uh, we think of those on the island of Maui in the Lahaina fire that have lost loved ones, that they still do not have a full count of those lives that have been lost. And the grief and the tears that are coming from that island, oh God, would you draw near to them? Would your church raise up, Lord, on the island of Maui and, and uh, comfort the, those who are, are wrestling with these issues and the sorrow of losing all their earthly belongings, but also loved ones, that, Lord, you would save many as they turn to you in their grief. Father, we pray for uh, the Wyatt family here in our uh, in our um, community. We think of Carla and the family, Lord, as they uh, lost Ronnie this week. Um, and Lord, we thank you that he knew you. Uh, we pray that you would comfort the family, Lord, as only you can. Uh, help them to look heavenward and to uh, know that their redemption draws near as well. And so uh, be with them as they grieve. Father, we lift up uh, California to you, who is, uh, they're experiencing uh, Hurricane Hillary, as we speak, uh, Lord, that you would spare lives, that you would show mercy, that you would draw many to yourself in the flooding that is happening, that you would show grace, Lord, um, even to my own family, I pray, and uh, extended family there, uh, and Lord, that you would give the church wisdom in responding well uh, in Southern California. Father, we thank you for our expectant mothers. We lift up Sarah Furches to you, Lord. We ask that you would uh, be with her as she uh, awaits uh, delivery later this year, uh, that you would bring a healthy pregnancy, Lord, and a, uh, a no-complications delivery, Lord, in, in the months ahead, Lord, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Father, we think of John and Ellie and the joy of this precious baby, Nehemiah. Lord, we thank you for the Tucker family. We pray that you would continue to give uh, Ellie healing, Lord, uh, to her body after delivery and um, continue to bring strength to Nehemiah's little body, Lord, as he continues to grow day by day, that you would help him to be healthy. And of course, we pray that he would come to know you at a young age. Father, we pray for healing for others that we've been praying for for some time. We continue to pray for Dean Mundy, Lord, as he battles Bell's palsy. We think of John Cordy and Bethanna, Lord, as they are uh, missionaries with RBNet and uh, John's struggle with um, esophageal cancer. Would you encourage him? Would you strengthen him? Would you uh, give grace, Lord, as he goes through cancer treatment? We think of Christina Grabiel, Lord, and that you would be with her as she goes through um, her treatments as well. And Lord, as she trusts you and as she looks to this season, that she would not be exhausted, but Lord, that you would strengthen her uh, both in spirit but also in body as she battles cancer as well. Uh, Lord, that we are here for them and we ask that you would aid us, Lord, in, in loving them well. Father, we pray for Kitty as she uh, looks to possibly having surgery in the meetings with her doctors, Lord, that you would just bring healing, Lord, to this, uh, this shoulder, this clavicle bone, uh, 
Lord, that we just uh, lift her to you once again and uh, give uh, your uh, just, just blessing upon her, Lord, and that she would be encouraged by you. Father, we pray uh, too, uh, Lord, for Barbara Lawrence, Lord, as she's in the hospital and that you would be with her uh, and their extended family, Lord, as they um, just ask for your grace, Lord, after this stroke. And so we pray for Barbara as well. Father, we pray for Dan and Star, Lord, as they are in Honduras uh, visiting their daughter and the adopted grandchildren, Lord, that you would be with them, that you would encourage them while they're there. And Lord, keep them healthy. Uh, Father, give them a great time of encouragement uh, with their daughter there. Uh, we just look forward to what you will do. Father, we lift up uh, the church plant and um, in Wilkesboro. We thank you for uh, just a wonderful outreach yesterday, uh, 25 or 26 uh, new faces uh, that they were able to minister to and give gift bags to for the new school year. Thank you for the gospel presentation that was given to these families. We pray that you'd bring fruit from that, that uh, you would bless uh, Tim and Cindy, Lord, as they uh, continued laboring there with the saints. Lord, that you would grow that church in your time, that they would trust you, that you would encourage them. Father, you would raise up leaders for them as well, as uh, is Tim's desire, and as our desire here at the gathering, that you would provide such men. Lord, as we continue now our worship, would you help us as we approach your word, and would you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I trust that you are well. What a beautiful morning it is that we are able to gather together to worship I think it was 58 at our house this morning, and just the, the low humidity is just, oh, it is precious. Um, uh, while we know that winter is coming, and harsh winds and bitter cold, we are so enjoying this, are we not? So we're thankful uh, for that. As you turn in your Bibles uh, to Genesis, uh, we will be uh, finishing up chapter 19 today. You can turn there. But uh, as I've promised the children, I have a few children's bulletin questions to uh, respond to before we go to the word this morning. Uh, and such profound questions. Uh, obviously, I'm humbled many times at the profound thoughts of our children. But uh, a few uh, that were written in the last few weeks. Um, first is, why did Lot and Abram separate in the first place? Well, that's a great question. Uh, thank you for asking that. Uh, we know that from the scriptures, as we looked at a few weeks ago, really a couple chapters ago, that Abraham and Lot separated due to the greatness of their herds. The land was not able to provide for the large amount that God had blessed both of them with. And so God, uh, in his sovereign plan, separated Abram and Lot. And Lot chose the fertile country of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and Abram chose to go to the land that he had obviously been promised by God uh, towards the land of Canaan to the west of what we now know as the Dead Sea. It's very interesting to note that following uh, what we've studied on Sodom and Gomorrah and its destruction, that Sodom and Gomorrah is no longer a fertile place to this day uh, due to the judgment of God. But originally they separated uh, because um, they could not care for both of their field or the, both of their flocks uh, because of the size of them. But also, we know in God's sovereign plan that He was uh, confirming His promise to Abram 
but also working in Lot's life as we're seeing in the text that we're studying. A second question uh, that we had is, if we are to love God more than anything, why should we fear him? What an excellent question. Well, I think at times we tend to separate the love of God and the fear of God. And I think it's important that we realize that while we think of fear in the sense of being afraid, there is a sense that our fear as his children is different than the fear or the, 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 uh, the, the presence of being afraid in his presence like we have saw in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's different when we think of what, it depends on what we mean when we're asking that question of what it means to fear him. But ultimately, fear, children, really speaks to a reverence, a humility that we have before the nature and character of God uh, for him and, and looking to him with reverence and awe for who he is. And of course, those of us that have come to faith in Christ, we know that his wrath is taken away. And so there's not a, a fearful judgment that we expect in that way, but rather a um, joy that we have that's been replaced because of Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. And so fear then is related to loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, there are two sides of the same coin, if you will, that we're called to love and fear God. And so a, a, a heart that fears God reverences him, obeys him, seeks to, by the presence of his spirit, to seek after him with all of our hearts. And so what a great question. Thank you for writing uh, these children in your uh, children's bulletin. And I want to do one more uh, just because um, uh, they're related in these ways. The question was, how are we saved? Does God ever use visions now as he did in speaking with Abram or others in the Old Testament? Excellent question. Well, we know that we're saved by God's initiating work in our lives, in regenerating our very hearts. We are spiritually dead. This is why all of us need a Savior. This is why we need to call out to him. And we know that through his gospel informing us that we are dead indeed to sin, we can be made alive to God in Christ Jesus by faith and by repentance. And that is responding in a work, to the work of God in our hearts by turning to him in faith and repentance, that we're believing that what God has done for us in Christ is applied to our account. This is what we call the doctrine of justification, that we are no longer in our sins, but we are now in Christ. And then we also know that he speaks to us mainly through his word. I would point you to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 as an answer to, does God use visions now? Well, we know in the last days uh, of his son, he speaks to us mainly through the words of scripture. Now, we have probably heard stories of God using dreams and visions, not just in the Old Testament, but maybe in missionary stories and other ways. And God is not put in a box in ways that he can use and proclaim his name, as we have seen. But it's not normative. We know that God's work in the Christian is through his word and by his word. And so I just want to encourage you that when you're seeking the Lord, uh, children, look to his word and know that his principles being applied to your life uh, give you the direction and the guidance and the wisdom that is needed. And not every uh, decision we make are we're going to find in black and white in the scriptures. Sometimes they're biblical principles, 
And that's why God gave you parents to help you in the way that you should go so that when you grow old, you will not depart from it. So thank you, children, for your words and your questions. Uh, they're encouraging to me. I read every single one of them, and it keeps me humble too. So I'm thankful uh, for each of you. Would you now stand with me as we read God's word together from Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 30, and we will read through verse 38. This is the word of God. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father's father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And thus the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It accomplishes the separation of even the bone and the marrow. We know God's word is given to us as a means of showing us his righteousness. God's word is given to us and is useful for teaching and training in righteousness. Sometimes we come to passages such as this and they're almost embarrassing to read, let alone to preach. But the fact that you guys came back after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and literally a hellfire and brimstone to tag a passage like this is almost even harder. As if the judgment from above is not difficult to look at the brokenness of Lot and his daughters, let alone the trauma of their disobedience that would have its way in the future such passages are difficult, but before you tune out, hear that this is God's word. It is powerful. It is able to shape us. And yes, the gospel is here, whether you see it yet or not. And so I want to encourage us as we look at this passage, we would consider the title that the wisdom of man in the wake of the judgment of God we see how Lot responded. We almost see a similarity or a parallel in how Noah was after the flood. If you remember, Noah was drunk and his sons had to cover his nakedness and yet Noah cursed his other son that uh, seemed to profane his nakedness or even to mock him in some way, shape, or form. 
but also in the context of the Old Testament, we see a sexually broken mankind. Without distinction, the Bible doesn't blush from mentioning the lowest of lows in humankind. We know with the judgment that came in the days of Noah, are warnings in the New Testament that just as those days came, so they will come amongst us. We are not uh, immune to sexual deviation even in our own world today. We see it running rampantly, and it's the common uh, conversations of those around us. And so as the church, we are called as God's people to not only acknowledge passages like this in the text of Scripture that no doubt are uncomfortable, but that God raises out of it a uh, reminder of his holiness and his character that we are to reveal as his people. In fact, a sexual ethic is being in not just uh, the, the conversations of these texts as they are um, narrative in nature, but the very principles are being taught in the midst of what is profane and what is perverse versus what is holy and what God has created for us. And so this text is valuable, I would add. And for us to read on, it would be to miss something. I find it interesting as I sought to read uh, of the comments of others throughout the centuries from uh, reformers like John Calvin and Puritans um, that uh, I've read, that many in their commentaries on this part of Genesis seem to quickly move to the end of chapter 19. But I find such gold nuggets here of what God is doing in the context of the narrative of Genesis. The scarlet thread, if you will, does not go from chapter 18 and pick up in chapter 20. It's right here before us, and I want to show you that this morning. And so as we look at God's word, let's consider three points here as we walk through this text. First of all, there is a trauma that Lot experienced. A trauma, not just of the holiness of God, but a trauma of the judgment of God that he personally saw and experienced. Remember, Lot lost his wife as he fled. And as we'll see here in verse 30, we'll see that even the fear continued that he would eventually go to where the angels were seeking to point him in the first place. Secondly, we want to look at the temptation of the present, mainly focusing on, on uh, Lot's daughters here, that we would consider these truths. In fact, Jesus himself brought attention to Lot and his choices here and Lot's wife when Jesus himself quoted this passage and said the words, remember Lot's wife as he spoke to his disciples and to those following him. And then lastly, we want to look at the travesty of the future when we consider the, the sin of this generation and its impact, but also look at the redemptive theme that is tied to the rest of Scripture right here in this text. So let's look at our first point, the trauma of the past. We've been looking in our study of Genesis on God's holy character he has revealed himself. He has made himself known. He has uh, not just created as we saw in the early parts of Genesis, but we see that God has a plan that's much bigger than each of these generations. And we've watched it from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the covenant that he's made with Abraham in recent chapters. 
and we've taken a side narrative here on the life and person of Lot. I encourage you to look deeply that the scriptures are not silent concerning Lot, that he is seen and known by God as a righteous man, if you will, one of his chosen. And when we read the passages of scripture, we're confused by Lot's uh, life and his choices, are we not? We see him living amongst Sodom and almost being comfortable to live there when he knew of their great sin. Now, we know that he didn't participate in it per se, but we know that it affected him because other scriptures tell us that he was um, bothered by such unrighteousness. And he knew that it was not pleasing to God perhaps informing why he met the angels at the city gates and sought to show hospitality because he knew what his neighbors would and were capable of doing. And so while hospitality was huge for Lot as a uh, application of what God was doing in him and through him, we see the effect of sin and dwelling in Sodom had on his family, namely his sons-in-law who thought him to be joking when he told him it was time to leave, let alone his own wife, whose heart was in Sodom. And it was made evident because she turned back. And so when we look at this, we know that Lot has gone through great trial. He's felt, if you will, the very fires of God's judgment upon his back as he barely makes it out of Sodom. You can only imagine if you experience this, what your Uh, demeanor would be after seeing such great judgment. Like I said, there's a parallel here with what happened with Noah. After the judgment of the world, can you imagine what Noah felt like to put his feet on solid ground once again, but the eerie silence of nothing, a naked world that God had just judged, and he felt so alone. Now, we don't know the reason why Noah got drunk, But it's very possible that this was purposeful, that he medicated, that he tried to cope in other ways. And instead of crying out to God, he gave in to drinking wine and was um, found to be an embarrassment. And so it's not just a underlining here of the dangers of medication of our sorrows, but we see that throughout Scripture, that drunkenness is um, seen as sin. And that is not necessarily uh, overarching into our views of all kinds of enjoyable beverages, but we do see there's a condemnation because there's a connection between the heart and its state and that which we do. And so we see Noah responding that way, but we also know that while we see the daughters are getting um, lot drunk, it is certainly a state of heart that Lot was in such a position to be um, overwhelmed by such circumstances. And so we look at this and we see the trauma of the, uh, the life of Lot. But notice here in verse 30 that it says that now Lot went up out of Zoar. Now Zoar in Hebrew means little, He, remember, begged the angels bringing judgment that he could go there and stay there. And God, in his kindness, let him go there. And it was a small town on the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God did spare that town. 
And we don't have in the text of Scripture why Lot responded this way, but it says that he lived in the hills with his two daughters. Now remember, he was encouraged to go there at first, and he didn't, but now he has. Well, what is the reason for that? Well, the end of verse 30 tells us, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Now, lots of questions may come to our mind when we observe this text. Why in the world was he afraid? The judgment is passed, is it not? Well, as we look at this, there's a possibility, of course, that he was afraid because the character and nature of Zoar was no different of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that because the original intention was that they would also be destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. But he sought to dwell there, and God spared them there in that place. It also could be that the fear of um, Lot was that God would bring that judgment while he was yet in that city. And while the text doesn't explain that to us, we know that fear drove him to the mountains. And he was alone. And the very thing that he sought to escape, we find that God let him suffer. The words of John Calvin here are amazing as he says that God often at times gives us the due penalty of our own choices to draw us more closely unto him. And instead of racking upon us more um, heavy weights, he lets, by natural means, the issues of our own decisions draw us back to himself. What a great observation here, that we know that God has not abandoned Lot. He saved him. We know that God has not forsaken Lot. He's drawn him close to himself. But we see here the very nature of the flesh in response to not just the wrath and judgment of God, but our own existence in this world. Have you ever been tempted to respond in the flesh? Even with the knowledge that God has brought your circumstances to you in his providence? Yet they're so bitter that we're tempted to not just pray, but to do things our way. And this can come in a variety of ways. Perhaps you haven't uh, sipped alcohol to cope, but perhaps you have cut off relationships. Perhaps you have uh, been a recluse. Perhaps you've run from things that you ought not to run from because of the trauma of things that have happened in your life that God in his almighty plan has allowed to cross your experience. How is God working in and through your life in the circumstances that you indeed have experienced, whether they came straight from the Lord or through the sins of other people? But we know that he was not just delivered alone. He was delivered with his daughters. And his daughters and him lived in a cave, it says in verse, the end of verse 30. But it speaks loudly of our fleshly decisions. And once we witness all that God is doing in our lives, we are called to respond in faith, not by the flesh. And so we come to our second point here as we look at verse 31 and we look at the temptation based on such things in the present. So notice Lot and his daughters and how they are reasoning through their lives. Again, we are called as God's people to give no opportunity to the flesh, to not think in such a selfish way, let alone a sinful way, because our flesh is weak. 
as we heard Paul preach several weeks ago, that we're to put no confidence in the flesh. And so we see just the opposite for Saul's, I mean, Lot's daughters, rather. It says here, the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now let's get into the mindset of this oldest daughter here. We don't have her name, but we know that she is reasoning with her younger sister. And notice the context of her reasoning. First of all, many would say that perhaps she thought that all the world had been destroyed and they were the only ones left. But we know that's not the case because they just left Zoar. But to give her credit, perhaps she is seeing that Zoar is just as evil as Sodom and through the wisdom that is given her that she knew that she didn't have a chance to carry on a relationship with any of those men of that city. They were in fact wicked and under the banishment of God. Let alone, remember, she was uh, engaged to be married to the men of Sodom who perished in the fires of judgment. So she herself was in a sense, traumatized by the past. But is she not short-sighted? Is she not short-sighted that the God that rained fire from heaven is able to give life to the womb, to provide a husband for her and her sister? If she would only look to him, and instead of seeing a prayer of sorrow and repentance and looking to the Lord who can only uh, cause uh, good things to come out of a judge-dark background she intends to apply her own wisdom, which is to look to her father who she knows has been spared and is going to not have the ability to raise up godly seed because not only was his wife destroyed, but their um, husbands were destroyed, husbands-to-be were destroyed. And so her reasoning here is that God would have her to raise up offspring in an act of her own. But the flesh is often fickle, is it not? It's often deceived because to do so would mean that she would have to sin in other ways to bring this upon uh, or bring to fruition. You think about her sins towards her father here. You think about the sins of uh, inciting her sister to such evils. While we don't see the young sister giving feedback, we wonder what her state of mind would have been and what her thoughts would have been, but we see the leading of this uh, firstborn daughter. And so the grossness of our own sin reminds us, really, of Abraham and Sarah, does it not? That Sarah herself was led to think that the ways of the tribes around them could be a solution to this so-called promised child that has not come yet. After 10 years of waiting upon the Lord, that she suggested to Abram to take uh, Hagar as a handmaid and produce offspring through her. And yet, thus is the lesson to us that we seek to do God's will, man's way, always ends up with great trouble. And while God uses the very sins of our own lives to accomplish his purposes, as we'll see by the end of this text, we also know that there's a great heaviness and weight upon such choices. And so she says in verse 32, come, let us. It's very interesting. Those words in Hebrew are the same words as how God said in, at the Tower of Babel, come, let us go down and confuse their languages. 
It's almost it's in stark contrast that what God is doing and his redemption plan throughout the scriptures at this time are in very contrast to how man is simply destroying himself. Do we not see that aching in our own culture? We see our very culture destroying itself. And Abraham saw this, Lot saw this, and the temptation is to sh close down and, and to shut up and to go into our caves and, and seek to keep the world out while we uh, enjoy the, the pleasures of awaiting heaven. But this is not what God has traditionally planned amongst his people. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, in light of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, should remind us, even in the present day, to weep for those who are awaiting such judgment. And while the future judgment of those without Christ should not be our only motivating factor for sharing the gospel, it is a natural one in the midst of God's sovereign plan in sending his church to the proclamation of Christ and his glory. Are you, church, weeping for those who do not know their right hand from their left, or as we might say today, their gender. When it's so plain by nature, those who are wrestling and, and divulging themselves into all kinds of immorality and signs of evil, and inventing, as the scriptures say, new kinds of evil, do our hearts not weep? This is why we have uh, anguish of soul to even watch the news. It should cause our stomachs to be upset, but it should inform our prayers, it should inform our consciences, and it should affect our hearts and our emotions. And so we see here the great depravity of man in contrast to God's working in raising up a people to himself that are going to be unlike fallen humanity. And so we see really two paths of the faith of Abraham Versus while we see Lot, we see God has a, a, a great um, uh, just patience and mercy upon even the Gentiles that would come from many of these tribes. So this very, very shameful act that happens here in verse 32 and is suggested, in fact, is the very one that uh, Lot had suggested to the men of Sodom in chapter 19, verse 8, to uh, assuage them from... Uh, committing the acts that they were seeking to have upon the angels. And so it says here that she gave the wisdom to her sister, the so-called earthly wisdom, to make their father drink wine, acting on this untruth that there was no other way, and that they would lie with him, that we may preserve offspring for our father. Now we don't, nothing is said here about uh, the uh, position of Lot, his mental uh, state or what, but we do know that he certainly had to have uh, partaken of the wine to start with. And, um, and how that happened, the scriptures don't say, and we're thankful it doesn't. But we see here in verse 33, they made their father drink wine that night. And so in his drunken state, it says at the end of verse 33 that the firstborn went in, lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And so the deepness of his drunken stupor is affected, perhaps even unconsciousness uh, to that point. And then we see in verse 34 how 
such a man could overcome such a thing even in 24 hours. Perhaps he was still in that state where the firstborn uh, um, points the younger to this in verse 34 and says, Behold, last night I lay with my father and uh, let us uh, make him drink wine tonight also and then go in and lie with him that we may preserve our offspring from our father. And there is the underlying purpose statement for their actions, which I think deserves our attention. Now, we know that incest is looked down upon and called sin throughout um, the uh, Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. We know that ultimately it was uh, given in the law of Moses, which came later. But we know that God's, this was initially not God's plan, although if you consider the early chapters of Genesis, we know that such was, would have been the case with uh, Abel and his future wife, or Cain and his future wife, that were most likely sisters. And so we know that, uh, that this was not necessarily looked upon, down upon in the early days of Genesis, but certainly has a negative connotation here. And we know that based upon uh, it not being a normal behavior and therefore the need for alcohol to cope with the uh, damning effects of such sin. And so it says, so they made their father drink wine that night also. So in the midst of this, this purpose statement at the end of verse 34 shows their reasoning that God would preserve offspring through their father. This wasn't just uh, the, by nature of their family, which certainly was an issue, but it was a sense of seeing that righteous seed would continue in the midst of such judgment that they had just experienced. The short-sightedness, however, is in parallel to what God has done with Abraham in the previous chapters. And so Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing these things down to draw these parallels to show that God will always keep his word, that his promise through the offspring of, of, the, um, of the promised ones along the future of Abraham's line, that God would bring redemption through him. We know that's the promise of God. We know that that's what he was doing, and yet Moses is painting this contrast with Lot while he was saved and while he was delivered and while he was righteous. The line of Christ, we will see, is mixed in with all of this. It's very interesting to see here that through such great perversion that God brings redemption, and we'll see that in just a few moments. But their purpose statement was ultimately to preserve offspring. It wasn't sinful and the very uh, purpose of it that they were doing this for some pleasure, but rather for the preservation of offspring. And so we see their thinking. We see while it was faulty and sinful, they had purpose. And so in the providence of God, we see in verse 35, as we look to the travesty of the future, it says, so they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger one arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. And so the firstborn, firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites to this day. And so God in his providence is showing us in the narrative of scripture, the beginning of two people groups, two that would become uh, these tribes in the days ahead. 
In fact, the scriptures are not silent about these tribes, which we don't have time to unfold today, but maybe as we walk through Genesis, we'll make mention of. But it's interesting that even in the context of Genesis, even Hagar's son, Ishmael, showed about the tribes uh, that would ultimately become some of the Arab tribes of the Middle East in those days. And so it's not just historical narrative, but it's informative because the Lord uses this in his sovereign plan to remind us of what he's doing in the nations. He will raise up a people for himself through Abraham's seed, but there is, in a way, a a human history, an anthropology that's coming along here. Why? Well, God loves the nations. We know that. We know that he's going to redeem some from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so God is a God of the nations. In fact, even in the context of of Abraham's uh, pleading with God to spare some in Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you are judge over all the earth. You're not just my judge. You're not just my God. You are the God over all the earth and you will bring righteous judgment in your way and in your time. And so Bible history is important here. Just a few nuggets of truth about the Moabites and Ammonites. They certainly were looked down upon from their very uh, incestual Um, uh, beginnings. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, in verse 3 and 4, it says they were excluded from the worship of God's people. There's a sense that they were on the outside, if you will, even though that they had um, righteous beginnings. Um, We know that the Moabites and the Ammonites were under judgment by God because of their lack of kindness for Israel as they came into the land. But even here, We see even in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Zephaniah later in the Old Testament that God was working a judgment upon them in his own way. But in the midst of this, in the very center of our Old Testament, we see an amazing truth come out of what we see as such a negative people group every time we read the word Moabite or Ammonite. And that is a woman a woman named Ruth was a Moabitess. And it's through God's sovereign work in Ruth's life in bringing her to Boaz that she becomes the grandmother of King David. In fact, she is intimately tied to the very redemptive theme of God's scarlet thread going to the cross of Jesus. She becomes a great, great, great grandmother of our Savior. It's amazing how God works in history and how he multiplies his redemptive work even through the sinfulness of man. And so knowing that I'm preaching to not just this group this morning, but those online, it is possible that such sins have been traumatic in our own lives as well knowing the world that we live in, the trauma of living in a sinful world, it reminds us that God draws near to us, that he understands the pain and the agony of what some of us have been through. We see in the context of Scripture that it doesn't blush when, when we would probably blush at such stories, that we want to skip over chapter 19. But it's in the context of such pain, it's in the context of such sin, it's in the context of its fruit that God preaches to us that there is hope. That there is hope not just for our hurting hearts, but that there is redemption for God's people in the midst of a sinful world. 
And so here we see, church, the very gospel of our great Lord Jesus Christ, that in our own sin, that God is able to deliver us from great turmoil of heart. And that alcohol certainly is not the answer. In fact, that's a doorway to more sin. But there is a joy that awaits those who humbly cry out to him, as the psalmist did, oh Lord, I cried to you, I wet my pillow with my tears. For those of you who have had some great, even sexual trauma, I remind you that God is good. He is not like your abuser. And he is healing you day by day because the scriptures tell us he is renewing our hearts. And I just want to encourage you from this text as we seek to apply it. We look at this text and we say, what in the world is of redeeming value in such a story? Church, in what ways do we need to take God at his word and follow him in first-time obedience. What do I mean by that? Consider what Lot went through. He was encouraged by the angels to flee to the mountains in the first place. He was in the presence of heavenly beings. And in his own uh, selfishness, he was pleading to have another favor done his way by asking and begging that he could go to Zoar having just lost his wife, who was tied to the things of this world, we know from the very teaching of Jesus that Lot's wife was probably tied to the things behind her, her household things, even the, the, the nature of being amongst the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, she looked back upon. She rather would look back to this world rather than to what God had in a redemptive future. Church, take warning and take heed here. If you are looking more at this world for your comforts and for your joys, rather than the glories of heaven, where we shall be for millions of years to come, you are short-sighted. You are resting in less treasures that are being offered to you. As C.S. Lewis once said, when we are offered a holiday at sea, we, we, uh, we resort to making mud pies in the backyard. It's a great picture. First time obedience. Do when we hear the Lord, do we obey or do we seek to plead with him and seek to respond to him or even argue with him? Secondly, church, how do we respond to God's sovereign working around us? And what I mean by that is natural disasters or other things that God in his sovereign plan bring into your life and mine. Enter whatever you want into that blank. Some of you have lost homes due to natural disasters. Some of you are wrestling with cancer. Some of you have lost loved ones or have a, 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 a son or daughter that's walking away from the Lord. Uh, many of us have family members that have walked into sexual deviation. Many of us have stories that we can share of ways that God has in his plan, brought things into our lives that are bitter for us and we'd rather not talk about. But how are you responding in such ways? Well, we see in a negative example here that Lot, in his temptation, was able to overcome such temptation as the scriptures tell us, that we're not to be short-sighted. We're to take heed lest we fall. And so if you're discouraged or 
in heart and soul concerning things around you. Just realize that God is using that as a funnel for you to go into his presence and cry out to him. Thirdly, how do you cope with living in a sinful world? We all seek to do that, of course, through natural means that God has given us as means of grace, to come be with his people, to pray, to read his word. But those aren't the only answers, the, the issue of our own hearts looking unto the Lord and not around us, that we are to look on other things. As Paul encourages the Philippians, think on things above. Everything that is noteworthy and holy, he tells us to constantly be thinking about those things. As he says to the Colossians, set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you, dear saints, take your anxieties to the throne of God? Do you leave them there or do you pick them back up the next morning? The Lord in his word, even in the songs we just sung, his ancient words do help us cope. And we look for that celestial city to come and our hearts are heavy. We cry out for God's judgment, but at the same time that God would show mercy on our neighbors as we go along this path. Fourthly, does it tempt us to overcome our own flesh? Or not overcome our own flesh? Sorry, I read that wrong. Does it not cause us to look more closely to the Lord? Or are we tempted like Lot to give up? Or like Lot's daughters to invent evil ways to accomplish the goals that we think we ought to be accomplishing? Flesh versus the spirit. The principles are here before us. Or do we cry out for mercy and God's redemptive work in our lives? Before we open our mouth, are our hearts going to him and, and uh, rather than our own wisdom? And then lastly, how are we short-sighted that God is using what we've experienced to bring himself much praise and glory? Yes, saints, even your own sin he is using for good. Your own sin he's going to use in redemptive ways. And while you see the results of your own sin producing fruit, in the midst of that, God is raising up godly seed in your own life and the lives of your families as he uses them for his redeeming work. Do not be short-sighted that he is using even your own sin. And while you rejoice in your forgiveness and the assurance of your pardon, but you also look at the objects sometimes of your own sin and its fruit, know that God is kind. And know the words of Scripture that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is redemption, hope, and eternal joy. So the midst of this very dark passage of human sin and human error, and human thinking that God is seen as holy, but also as redemptive. Church, trust Christ. Trust him in the ins and outs of your messy world. We are just as a mess as Lot. It may not be the same, uh, same, same things that we, we struggle with, but God has redeemed us. And as our backs feel the heat of the judgment of God, uh, on those who are not turning to him, may that bring great joy to you as you look forward to what he will do in you and through you in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Oh God, our temptation is to let it slip from our mind or to think it's too 
perverted to even read. But even in the context of the the evil that we see, your spirit inspired such a text for our own good. To see ourselves, to see our own fallenness, the wretchedness of man, the depravity of man on the pages of Scripture that cause us to leap by faith upon the loving arms of the eternal God who has made himself known in Christ Jesus. Oh God, I think the worst travesty this morning would not be that we slept through this sermon or sought to even ignore it or not even remember anything, but the travesty would be that we would not look to Christ and be saved ourselves. The travesty that we could hear the very gospel of Christ preached and we be found wanting to leave this place without turning to you in faith and repentance and knowing that, oh Lord, you have seen our sin and you willingly took it upon the cross, upon yourself, and you exchanged our depravity, yes, the depravity of, Saul, uh, of Lot's daughters, and you replaced it with your righteousness. Oh God, if one is burdened by their own past sin, and struggle with your redemptive work, oh God, would they know your closeness this morning? Or one that has been sinned against, that the very forgiveness that you've offered to them in Christ, they could extend to others because you took that penalty upon yourself. And while we are yet sinners, you died for us. Oh Father, would you work this text into our hearts in ways that we cannot even see right now, that you might make us a people that's more humble, more thankful, and that the gospel would be on our lips to show that there is redemption, that anyone, no matter how dark in depravity of sin that they are, that you are able to save. In fact, you are mighty to save and that you are able to transform the likes of us. Help us to be grateful people that as we know that your judgment is coming upon this world, that we would have a smile on our face because we know that glory awaits and that we would be messengers of both your righteousness and holiness, but also of your grace, your love, and your intense mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.